1: Welcome back to Bat Force Radio, the Batman NDC podcast with no limits. We have a full house for the pandemic edition of Bat Force Radio tonight. Uh, We've got uh, the Grumpler in New York. Yo. Grandpa Batman in Texas. Howdy. Triumphant return of the Trunkler in Chicago. How's it going? uh, Bat Force Tom in California.
2: Locked down, but not locked
1: out. The Bat Force Times in New York. And I think that's everybody. I'm Robin Cross in Canada. So, uh, yeah, like I said, a sort of unconventional recording tonight. Uh, Everybody's locked in at home. Hopefully everyone listening is safe and healthy. Uh, You have seen this week's guest in the pages of Batgirl as well as Batman and the Outsiders. And in the coming months, you will see his work beginning on Catwoman number 23 with Sean Murphy and Blake Northcott. As well as Darkhold number one for Marvel, along with Steve Orlando coming up in June. Joining us tonight, all the way from Dublin, Mr. Kian Tormi.
0: Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice. <laughs> Thanks for having Thank you, us. you so
1: much. Thank you for taking the time to be here, especially how crazy everything is right now. Uh, first, I just wanted to ask how is uh, everything in your part of the world right now?
0: That's a good question. Uh, so, as you mentioned, I've currently got, like, so much work on that I'm sitting at home. I haven't left the house. And so I'm watching the news. Stuff looks like it's 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 starting to spike here, but it's not so bad. But, I mean, like, as far as I'm concerned, they, they could be, the streets could be overrun with zombies. I wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> well, so. that,
1: that's the best way to survive a zombie apocalypse, is just to not yeah, even yeah. know that it's happening out there.
3: It's uh, always no, interesting to talk to comic creators because, th- just like yourself, they're like, I don't know what's going on outside. I just stay in my little office and I just work. Is that really kind of how it is?
0: Yeah, well, so I went full time in comics uh, last August. Mm-hmm. So I'm adapting to the freelance life after years of working in, in ad agencies. So for me, there's been such a huge adjustment period already. And just uh, in the last few months, I've just had so much work that for this to have landed, like the the whole the whole crazy pandemic thing to have landed at the moment, man, I've just I have my head down. I'm just working through all of this stuff because the issues that I'm working on at the moment are overlapping, so I've like no time. And uh, I've got a window in front of my desk. The sun is coming in. I can hear the kids playing in the garden next door. So like everything seems really quiet. Seems really calm. Like it's. It's it's quite pleasant, while the world is just falling apart. So yeah, no, it's uh, it's quite an odd, quite an odd moment at the moment.
3: How do you go from working in uh, commercial ad agencies over to comics?
0: Uh, that's a good question. There's there's probably <laughs> <laughs> there's probably a couple of parts to the answer. Uh, I spent I spent about three or four years, three of three or four of the last few years working on comics stuff at the same time as working in ads so i've been working in advertising for about maybe eight years and for the last four i kind of decided i was i was going to try and 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 there's quite a few reasons why but i decided i was going to make a a a proper go at trying to get into comics because if i didn't manage it now i I needed to let it go you know i mean was Uh, that
3: always a dream that you always had or is that just kind of the natural course of you know, your, your skills and your talent.
0: I I think it was a dream. I think it was a dream that most of us have when we're young. Right. And then you kind of drift in and out of it. So you try, you, you try kind of getting into it, or at least you you think you're doing your best to get into it, but you've no idea how difficult it actually is in the end to, to, to break in and then you fall out of love with it. And then you kind of come back to it. I think there's quite a few people probably have a similar story where they, they tried to, they tried to get in and then or at least they they were in love with comics up to a point and then life kind of gets in the way and then you either come back to it or you you don't and so i had a funny uh kind of a funny couple of close glances to work so when i tell you a story there's like three parts to this okay so um when i was uh when i was about uh, oh, I'll tell you what. So when I finished, when I was finishing college, I did a graphic novel for my uh, degree show. So I would have been about 23 or 24. And my mom at the time was living in Florida a lot. So like six months of the year over there, six months of the, over, uh, over here. And one of the days she was playing golf uh, and she was playing with a couple of people, like they'd randomly put people together. And one of the people she was playing golf with was Jim Galton. Does that name ring a bell? Mm. He was the at one point he was the the president of Marvel Comics.
3: Okay. Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, like just as as it happens, and like classic Irish mother, she was like, "Oh no, my son made a comic. I'll have to send you his comic." <laughs> 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 well, of, yeah, course, and of course, she did, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so so he he sent it to Tom. Uh, who did he say? Uh, Tom DeFalco. Okay. And I was. Yeah, I was twenty three, and I got this letter from Tom DeFalco that basically just tore the whole thing apart. Like he just, oh. sh- <laughs> you're like, thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, man. It was it was cool because, uh, like, if I had been there when he when he looked at it, you'd be inclined to defend the work, right, rather than just take the criticism. But to get this, to get this really long letter that was like, uh, Jim, please tell Mister Tori that you should never. And then it went on for like three or four pages. So. Uh, I met Jim Golton a couple of years, no, 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 about a year later, and he was getting, he was kind of advanced in years, and he he asked me what it was in comics that I really wanted to do, and I think I was being, you know, like a kind of a smart-ass 23-year-old, I, like, I wasn't really giving him the right answer, I was like, oh, I'll do anything, you know, maybe writing, maybe editing, I, I gave him the answer that I thought that he wanted. And in the end uh i just i just didn't do anything you know classic you know just young and and just not really not really uh, i didn't apply myself to anything at the time i had like a lot of growing up to do so uh i i moved to spain and i lived there for a few years with the idea that i was gonna like do my comic portfolio and of course I, i just i didn't do anything so the whole dream just kind of just died there it took a few years that i didn't know it was dead but I, I kind of just let it go and then i came back uh and the, the second part of the story is that i started working in advertising and do you guys know the the big bang the the comic store here in dublin i they've been nominated for a few eisners
1: yeah I, I've, I've heard the name
0: yeah they're 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 amazing right and they used to be this really really small store they're they're huge now but they put on a, a comic convention here in Dublin that was like a, like a trade convention. You know, it, it was just for comic artists. Uh, Sean Murphy was there. That was the first time I met him. Mm-hmm. Um Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo were there. Like there were some huge names and we're talking about maybe, Oh man, could have been about six years ago. And uh, yeah. So I, I, I remember a friend of mine the copywriter that i was working with at the time he said oh there's going to be this show and there's going to be this marvel talent scout is going to be there and that was the first time that i met cb cebulski so i i thought you know what this this is the chance i screwed the first chance this is a few years later this is the chance and again you always think that you just present your work at at a portfolio review and you just get get a job and you know obviously it doesn't work like that but well, not for me. For but people better than me, obviously. But for the rest of us, it takes uh, it takes a bit of work. But uh, yeah, so over the course of about two or three weeks, I I, I pushed out like a, a whole load of pages, and I met CB, and he gave me his business card, and he said uh, we'll do some test pages. So he sent me some scripts, and guys, I, I think I had I think I had to draw five pages, and I think I took about three or four months to do it. And thinking about that now, considering I get calls and I need to do four or five pages in three days, it, it's just, I can't believe how, how uh, just how flippant I was. Mm-hmm. And so of course that just, that died as well. And that was when I made the decision, I was either gonna just let this comics thing just go completely, or I was just gonna have to do it on my own and stop waiting for God to to hand it to me, like it just wasn't gonna happen and so that was uh yeah that was when i started drawing more and reaching out to people to do some stories and over the course of the last couple of years i just kind of you know sidled in and yeah it it ended up going pretty well and and pretty fast so that's kind of that's the story in three parts
1: all right well so where so before the comics stuff happened, you were already working in the ad stuff. Uh, you have uh, the background as uh, a, an art director. Uh, where, where did your origin in art come from? What what piqued your interest there and led you down that road?
0: So I uh, I was I honestly it started with comics and and it's amazing to be back at comics even though for a long period in the middle there that wasn't that wasn't the case. But when I was growing up. I I just used to lie on the floor and just copy the the X-Men comics that my dad used to buy for me. So uh Spider-Man and the X-Men, that was all I used to draw. I used to copy all of the and this was in the this is 90s stuff, so it was all Jim Lee. Uh, and then wow. obviously I was obsessed with with Joe Mad like when I was just in my early teens. So I was uh drawing just all of that stuff. Um and I when I finished my the Irish version of high school I had applied for a couple of different courses and I just I just didn't get them and uh, I think I was like just aiming for law and <laughs> medicine and stuff <laughs> like everything that my mom told me I was supposed to do and uh, so I didn't get any of those so I applied to art college and uh, oh man I just my portfolio just got into everything so I was really lucky suddenly I had the pick of every course that I really wanted to do, and so I did four years of graphic design, which I hate. Uh, <laughs> I just yeah, it's just it's not it's not something I enjoy. And uh, yeah, so like I said, I moved to Spain for a couple of years, but when I came back, I I had no money left. I had I had nothing, n- not a penny to my name, and I got an interview with uh, with the creative director of an agency here. And he said he'd give me a shot. And at the same time, there was a there was an advertising competition. So it was organised by the national newspaper here. And uh, I did the competition and I won it. And uh, we went to myself and my copywriting partner at the time. We went to uh, Oslo for the European leg of the the competition, and I won that. So I came back and suddenly I just like was a full on. Art director from this, like I was about maybe two months into my career, and just was doing it from from then. So that was kind of yeah, that's what started the, the last eight years of of that stage, which was it all worked out really well.
2: What other um, What other artists during the '90s did you kind of gravitate towards aside from Jim Lee with the X Men stuff? Like, what else was going on? Because that's a massive time for you. Got Jim Lee, you got uh, Mark Silvestri doing the Wolverine stuff. Who else uh what was it? Uh Liefeld was doing um X-Force. That was like so a Monster
0: Time. It was, it was a Monster Time. You know what's crazy is I think about this all the time, but uh sometimes I feel like I never read any comic any comics at all because I couldn't I couldn't have told you who who wrote them, I couldn't have told you who drew them. I just mm-hmm. used to copy the stuff that I loved. And I could probably do a I could probably do like a cold case forensic thing. I could probably go back and, and get out. But uh man, Jim Lee and Joe Mad, they stood out. Uh I've I've since come to know that I, I absolutely loved all of the Neil Adams stuff. Uh, I loved all of the oh yeah. Um, Chris Bacallo as well. Like there were so many of these guys that I didn't know who they were until until years later because Oh, and Todd McFarlane, obviously. Um, I didn't realize how much of his Spider-Man I had, I had drawn, and of course all of his Spawn. I copied so much of that stuff. That's so funny. Um, but yeah, like you, you've no idea what's built into the building blocks of the the stuff that you loved at the time, and then years later, uh, the the artists and stuff that I would love, they came from a much more developed understanding of, of story and of of art. from a professional perspective uh, like art director wise and then obviously in drawing the stuff that I would love afterwards but man yeah it's it's funny sometimes I really feel like I let people down because they ask me questions like that I'm I'm really useless like I haven't haven't a clue so that uh, just goes uh, to show uh, the
2: power of the comics and that you know, you, the images you're seeing were so powerful that it just made you want to draw them. And the only thing you cared about was just kind of finding if you can replicate
0: it yourself. It, there, was a, there was a purity in just being just so in love with the characters. It, it's funny, but at the time, there was obviously a huge amount of escapism in it because it's funny, I could tell you the name of every character, I could tell you all of the stories. Like I must've read those comics until they fell apart. We couldn't have told you that there were people behind them which which mm-hmm. is kind of a crazy thing. and when my my folks were moving house um, like three or four years ago uh, we pulled out all these boxes of stuff like all my stuff from when I was in school you know when you were like 16 and, and younger and I found all of the boxes of all of the uh, the the X-men comics and things all the stuff that I used to draw and just pulling them out and realizing that it was all Chris Claremont. It was all of these these huge names that I know now academically from the way people talk about it from the last four years of me getting into this properly. But, yeah, so, like, if people ask me who my favorite writers and artists were, I couldn't tell you. But if somebody showed it to me, I'd be like, Man, it was that. It was that all the way. Like, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy, but I'm, I feel like a... Uh, a fake a fake fanboy sometimes <laughs> uh,
1: a, a, a lot of people are like that i work in a comic shop here and i find uh there are a surprising number it's surprising for me the number of customers that i'll say oh hey you should uh you should probably have this book on your file that's coming out next month and they're like oh why is that and you, you'll tell them what the title is like oh, i've never really been into that character why should i have it well, well the you know and i'll name the the author on it and he'll go who's that and well, you have eight books that he's writing on your file right now. so it stands stands for a reason that you enjoy his work and you should probably have this Oh, I had no idea that oh, the same person was writing cool. everything I read.
0: Well, you're doing such a cool job and educating people like because it's it's funny, but you don't become an, a knowledge about something until you're until somebody helps you understand these really constructive parts because it is easy to like so for example, so if you work in a comic store, you know the opposite extreme where there's people who know everything and because they're, they are the people who they speak to you at such length about stuff. It's easy to forget that there are so many people that really just don't know. And it is just about enjoyment. And we forget that obviously the the longer you're in it and the more you're kind of involved in how the sausage is made, you forget what it's like to just the purity of just enjoying something, you know? Um, which is just yeah it's it's quite cool and it's nice to think that there's there's there are people that you can guide them towards the stuff that they love without them even realizing what it is that they love or why they love it that's quite cool
1: yeah comics are uh, are seen for the most part in large part uh, in a different way from other mediums because how often does somebody watch a particular TV show because of who the producer is on it or or who wrote it no they they usually watch that show that's coming on because the actors that are in it or something. So that, that can be seen as I I read this comic because Batman is in it, not because I know who the guy writing it is, or I know who the editor is. So comics are are held to a different, uh, a different standard that way.
0: That's such a good comparison because it is exactly like that. And I think there's, there is uh there's very much a, a line. There's a line that you cross where you go from, Going to the cinema because you're you want to see a film that the actor is in, and if you get really into film, you absolutely cross a line where you realise that the actor is turning up because the director is looking for them or the screenwriter was doing something, and that's kind of like this really this invisible line that people either cross or they don't. Because um, man, like there are so many times. You know, when Val Kilmer. Oh, so when Val Kilmer was in the Batman film, I must have watched a whole stack of Val Kilmer films after that. And man, he was never in anything like Batman. So I watched <laughs> it crash. <like. laughs> so, yeah, just as just as an example.
2: What were some of the uh, the characters that you loved uh, to draw as you were getting into it? Like you said X-Men Any? Um, what was like your specific characters that you like absolutely either were loving to draw or that you wanted to kind of perfect because you love the character so much and the ones maybe that you were really good at drawing?
0: So I think, oh, so there's two things. Uh, I think what is funny is when I was growing up, there was, um, I, I would I would copy the, the panels and I think about this all the time, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the the panels where you had like a full character that did something really dynamic. And that's one of the reasons why the nineties was so cool. Like almost every panel was like a splash panel. Right. Mm. So, uh, Jim Lee could draw, uh, like Wolverine or Psylocke would turn up, you know, like Scott Summers would turn around and see Psylocke and she, she got a splash, but it would have been like a, a tall panel that any other artist would have just made it like a two shot or made it less dynamic. So, I used to just draw everything that I could find in each issue that I had that was like a, a single piece. I think that's one of the reasons why it was so much easier. I think there was a proliferation of artists that that copied guys like Joe Mad afterwards because it was at around the time when the internet came out and there was an awful lot more one-off isolated characters. That you could just find like you could do a search for stuff so he always had like a cool Batman or a cool a cool Superman or something and you could just draw those individually but when I was growing up man if I had a spider-man comic I drew every single panel that I could get my hands on and um, I remember uh, I remember I had an annual that had an awful lot of the you know when they do the the biographies the breakdowns of the villains and stuff and uh I think I, I, I made a point. I had this like refill pad full of really, really terrible recycled paper. You know, the stuff that you get at like a pound store. Do you remember those? Or like a dollar store?
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It'd be like a hundred pages of this thing, this bumper pad. And I remember just trying to do as many characters as I could over the course of this weekend that we were we were away for the weekend. And I did like 36 different characters over the course of the weekend. Damn. Yeah, yeah, like I'm sure they were terrible, but like, that, like that wasn't... but
1: but you were pumping out some pages.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. just like really kind of trying to hit some kind of limit. But um, but I think if 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 kind of central to the question is what kind of characters really grabbed my attention. Man, I was right at that sweet spot when when Venom and Carnage oh. came. Like oh, I, I would have those guys uh oh, non nonstop, nonstop. And yeah, I think Maximum Carnage was was an enormous, enormous thing for me. Um and also so was Death of Superman. I must have drawn every single one of those Supermen. Like <laughs> Steel was awesome. And the Eradicator nice. at the time was so cool as well. So and Doomsday, man, I've seen so much Doomsday. Um I think uh, well, you can see it now, but what has happened in later life is I realised that I was just with all the bad guys. Like yeah. every single villain, like Spider-Man. Yeah, he's cool, but man, Carnage was the best. Venom was the best. And now I'm thinking about it, even going through like Doomsday was really cool. I'm like, oh God, I didn't. I wasn't drawn to any of the good guys. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: <laughs> it's it's sort of fitting though that uh, the two, uh, at least the things that we're aware of that you're working on at the moment are a catwoman book and uh, a doctor doom story
0: yeah and the catwoman book is super fun and the bad guy in it oh i don't know if i can say this can i say this let's go can all I-
3: spoilers just spoil everything tell us the yeah, whole story come on. fuck I it
0: I won't, I won't spoil everything but uh i can't even say the main bad guy cuz the second issue could it could change but um So if
1: if, if you say if you say something, I'm just going to text Sean and just say, "Okay, this was already laid out. So you're not allowed to change
0: this. (laughs) You're welcome. No. So like in classic Sean style, uh, so Selena arrives on this this tropical island and she uh, she's there for an auction. I don't think I'm revealing anything that's not in the solicitation. She's there. She's there for this this, uh, super villain auction and she gets picked up by Snowflame. Do you guys remember Snowflame? Snowflame is this bad guy from, he must have been, I'd like to say the eighties, but it's probably the early nineties. But his his power is that he he becomes like God when he takes cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I,
2: remember I remember that, that
0: guy.
3: guy. <laughs> 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 you mean my uncle Was Tony?
2: He
3: was, like in this bad, he was like in this bad anti-drug issue or something like that okay. i remember yeah. that, I remember
0: uh, that. So he's awesome so i get to go uh i get to go pull miami vice on it because uh obviously sean is involved in the script so Snowflame is in like a full-on like a like an 80s suit He's got high tops on. He drives uh, a Lamborghini Countach. You know the the. <laughs> the, the, the so, uh, oh man! And you know what? I'll tell you what. If you do text him, tell Sean Murphy that he screwed me, man. Because oh, <laughs> he picked he picked the one car. that The car is badass, and it's so much fun to draw. But there's all this dialogue that happens between the characters in the car, and the car is is cool because it it's got super low clearance from the ground. But the windows are really low, so yeah, they these guys have to talk, and so I had to kind of I had to play fast and loose with the size of like exactly where the roof was off their heads and stuff. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it would have been like two characters having a conversation through a really sexy letterbox.
2: So I had to, <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, so I had to take liberties with that. But um,
2: so did did you did you get to draw somebody snorting coke
0: in this episode or this <laughs> is, issue? Not yet. but But I did give him, I did give him like a really cool Coke nail. Oh Oh, yeah. So it's implied. Uh, And he he does it when he opens opens a glove compartment and there's, there's a couple of bags. uh, (laughs) bags uh.
1: So, so you took this uh, eighties character uh, that was possibly for the purposes of some sort of anti-drug message. And now he's Scarface
0: yeah yeah no we glamorized them like absolutely. <laughs> well wow. like hold on so well the original guy if he was supposed to teach us any lessons he was aimed at us so we've either learned those lessons or we haven't <laughs> <So it> just, <laughs> you know, very true. but uh yeah so very very cool very odd character to be handed but it's yeah it was awesome
1: and uh, as I mentioned, the other thing that you've got going on is uh, the Darkhold uh, book coming up for Marvel uh, with Steve Orlando. How did that one come about?
0: So uh, I'm actually penciling one of the pages as we speak. Uh, how did that come about? So Will Moss, the editor, reached out to me and asked me would I, was I interested in taking it on. And there is a huge amount of Doctor Doom involved in it. And Doctor Doom's kind of—he's—he's he's one of my favorite characters, just for the, just the bombastic kind of regal nastiness of it. hes, he's just just—he's—he's he's really Shakespearean. Like he's somebody that you can really lean into, making him just kind of cold. And He's just dramatic, right? Every panel with Doctor Doom in it is like he's come down on the moors to talk to the three witches about his future or whatever. So he's—he's—he's he's, he's cool, and. Um, the very first marvel job i ever did was when was a 10 page doctor doom story with christopher cantwell you know the guy that wrote halt and catch fire the tv show oh, oh wow yeah uh, yeah he's 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 a super writer and uh, he had written a 10 page doctor doom story and will ask me could i take it and i did and since then um, I think Will knows how much I love Doctor Doom and the 10 story worked out really well. So when this came along, I was delighted that Will thought of me. That's kind of how that one came about. Um, there's a couple of half steps in between. I, I've done some other stuff with Will and Sarah Brunstadt, his, his assistant editor. So, uh, oh man, when I got this and then when I found out Steve was working on it because uh, I fell in love with Steve's work because I'm a huge fan of The Shadow. And when he did his Batman yes. and Shadow crossover, that was just like, that was pure fan service for me. So yes. when I found out Steve was working on this, uh, oh, I was so happy. And the script is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And there's so much just bizarre, bizarre stuff is gonna happen in this. It's It's epic. And he's setting up some really, really interesting stuff. So, uh yeah this is a uh, steve will probably tell you more but this is a i'm with him i'm doing two 30 page issues marvel's been doing a lot of alpha and omega issues have you have you seen those so basically yeah they're like bookends for something for stuff that happens in between so in this uh uh, scarlet witch and dr doom find themselves in a bit of trouble because they've awoken well, Doom, uh, being classic Doom, has awoken an elder evil. And the only way that they can stop it is to take five heroes that embody five virtues that could potentially, when they work together, could could topple this this ancient evil. And the only way that they can go into hell to, to defeat them is to read from the Darkhold, which drives them all insane. And so these five heroes are changed into terrible, evil versions of themselves. So in between the two... Issues that I'm doing the, the the bookend issues. There's going to be five different issues for each of the characters that will tell you the terrible visions that they saw that drove them insane. It's very cool.
1: Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, that's cool that you're a part of Steve's first foray into Marvel books. He's been doing a lot of DC stuff for a while now, uh, as well yep. as indie things. But uh, yeah, this is his first time uh, hitting a Marvel.
0: Yeah. So I I was honoured, um, and it's funny because the editor in DC that I have worked with the most, who has become a really good friend of mine, Dave Wheelgash, he also he's a really good friend of Steve's. And the first thing, uh the, the first email that I got was from Dave at, at DC, and he was like, "Man, I'm so happy that you guys are working together, because uh, Steve's a really good friend of his, and Dave has, as I said, has become a really good friend of mine. So uh, for him, he was like, ah the team that never happened <laughs> over DC. But uh, I, I think I could probably be, I could be argued back over there. Um, leave it with him.
1: Uh, so, so, yeah, speaking of which, so we know right now, I think all we know is that there are two issues that you're doing on Catwoman with uh, Sean and Blake. But I don't think we know, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think we know uh, that it goes past that so far.
0: No, so it's just that. So what's happened is, uh, DC wise. So the, the, the first professional work I ever had was with DC and that was with, um, Kyle Higgins got me, I was actually at Toronto. I was at Fan Expo and Kyle called me and asked me if I was going to be at the show. So I went and I met him and he put me, he was writing a short story, a Kilowog story. And he got on got in touch with Alex Antone, who I think has just moved to Skybound, who was the uh, one of the editors um, that uh, had asked. I, he'd asked Kyle to work on one of the first anthologies that I had ever seen from DC. I think it was Lo- Love in Space. And um, so I started working with DC on a couple of short stories. And then Marvel got me to do a couple of short stories. And then as I said to you guys in August last year, I went full time because I was just, I just couldn't take any more days off. I couldn't work through any more weekends and nights trying to get these short stories done around the day job. And the, the the call had finally come in that said, can you do Batman and the outsiders? Can you take a full issue? And I was like, okay, look, this is the moment where I'm just gonna have to, I'm gonna have to leap and I'm just gonna leave my career and I'm gonna try this comics thing. And I really genuinely thought that I would have a quiet year trying to figure out where this was gonna go. But I got a single issue, then I got two issues on Batgirl, then I got two issues on Catwoman, now I've got two giant issues on uh, Darkhold, and it's just been ramping up further and further and further. So those are that's kind of everything in a nutshell. But uh, in a very short amount of time, I've worked with quite a few different writers now because of those short stories. And my bookshelf is starting to fill up pretty quickly from all these anthology books.
1: Mm.
0: So, um, yeah, so nothing, uh, I can't announce anything after Darkhold yet, because everything's still kind of being discussed. But so far, it's just the two-parter. So Sean had asked me would I be interested in getting involved in his Murphy verse? because he had a couple of different ideas and he'd asked me that i think before christmas and he had a couple of different uh artists in mind for some some stories and uh, when he mentioned all the other artists i was like okay listen thank you for thank you for thinking of me but it's never going to happen because these like obviously sean can pick from the, the best artists in the world and he had done so uh nothing happened there but then I'd say maybe two months later, he he messaged me and he said, look, uh, I've got you on this this Catwoman thing. I think it's going to be brilliant. And that's how I ended up with, with Catwoman. So I've got my very kind of tall, grizzly guardian angel smoking and soap. <laughs> drive salts. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, that's a, a nice feather in your cap, though. That has to make you feel good to have an artist as accomplished as Sean is asking you to come over and and do the work on his books
0: sean has been just it is like a really it's it is like a a crossover of touched by an angel and the crow (laughs) he's kind of like just always just there in the periphery just kind of making sure things work out he's he's been one way or another he's looked after me pretty much since the start what happened early on was uh do you remember when he did his uh, his workshop where he had five artists go and stay with him?
1: Right. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so that was when uh, they produced Cafe Racer. So he was teaching people. I applied for the second year and he didn't run it the second year, but um, he emailed everybody to say that he was sorry that he wasn't going to do it. And then he emailed me the following day and said, look, DC reached out to me to see if I thought there was anybody that, you know, had potential. And he had sent my stuff on to Brian Cunningham, who was the, the group editor of the Justice League books. And that was my first interaction with DC. I hadn't really spoken to anybody at that point. And Sean had kind of pushed me in that direction. And nothing came of it then, but there was a couple of ways in. And, and Brian Cunningham ended up pushing me forward into, there was a DC talent hunt. So I applied mm-hmm. for that. And that culminated basically in just like a 20 minute phone call with Klaus Janssen just screaming at me. (laughs) Like (laughs) uh, (laughs) screaming at you. Oh man, yeah, he was. uh, So I I had done some pages and look, I was really, really just proud to be uh, in the, I think I got into the top 14, final 14. And, um, but uh, you would have this, one of the benefits of having gotten that far was you had this one-on-one video call with Klaus Janssen who, is uh he's a scary guy and um, <laughs> what no he's a fool. <laughs> and, yeah, he obviously hasn't shouted at you yet <laughs> <laughs> No, yet <laughs> but uh yeah no so uh, no he he was reviewing the pages and uh i was really conscious of the fact that you know it's like a job interview and well that's what i thought it was so you kind of have to take the you have to take the criticism well which obviously you probably should anyway but and um, he was saying, oh no, no, there isn't enough, uh, there isn't enough black on your pages. And he's he's so right, like you learn this lesson once, but but drama and composition, everything everything comes from the amount of black on the page. Uh, like the, you could paint a page entirely black and you guys know already, if you've ever seen a comic where the page is black, it's dramatic, right? Yeah. It, it's not dramatic if the page is white. So he has a point and he just kept going, if your composition is weak, it's because you don't have enough black on your page. And he started getting really angry. <laughs> and, uh, so I'll tell you what, I learned that lesson, man. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so oh, I suppose actually now that I think about it, uh, I, I met Sean and then it led to Klaus Janssen shouting at me. So it's probably not that good a story when you think about it.
1: When we get around to having uh, Klaus on the show, I'm specifically asking him, Hey, Let's talk about there not being enough black on Kian's
0: pages. (laughs) Like, he's just like, oh, I vaguely remember somebody whose pages were terribly, terribly (laughs) boring and undramatic, but I couldn't tell you who it was. (laughs) That would be my legacy. Ooh.
3: That's what I love about talking with you, creator guys, because you guys give us, you know, ammo for the next guy that comes along. So,
0: yeah, that's
1: going to be a fun story.
0: Oh
1: no! <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> <you. laughs> that's, that's funny how the uh, how the timing on this has worked out though, because uh, I had been speaking with you about coming on the show because you were working with Sean and Blake on the Catwoman stuff. Yeah. And then as we started nailing down a date to do this, uh, the Darkhold book was announced that you're doing with Steve who I already had scheduled to come on a couple of weeks from now. It's just funny yeah. how that all worked out.
0: Well, you know, it, it's it, in some ways uh, as happens in every industry as you guys know as well, but um like it can be quite a small world. Um and there are so many interesting kind of moves, lateral moves from so many creators and I uh, you know, it's it has been pointed out to me before. It's pretty clear, but I've been really lucky because so far in the last the last what year and a half of of working professionally, I've been offered uh, work from both sides of the aisle. So it's been really fun because that means that I've got I've gotten to work with such a huge array like array of of really talented writers and editors as well. So I've been really lucky that it hasn't been one or the other just yet. That it's been kind of both. And this was just one of those really interesting uh, inflection points creatively where uh, Steve had left DC where I was getting more and more work. And then bizarrely, we ended up working together in Marvel of all places where, like, that's the last place I would have thought that we would have ended up together. But I have to say, uh, as a as a collaborator, he's he's fantastic. And I'm not saying that just because you're going to talk to him next week. <laughs> but uh, No, I I have to say, just even craft-wise, I got his script. He asked, uh, initially, he asked me whether I wanted to work um, Marvel-style or full script. And this was one of those moments that, as I said before, because I've got Catwoman and Darkhold at the moment, just this issue is, they're overlapping. So um, as much as I would have loved to have gotten a little bit more involved in the storytelling of just kind of pulling the, the, the Marvel plot, apart it was just it was imperative for me that he helped me out with a, a bit more structure so in the end he sent me the script and but it was full of links to uh, references or locations that i didn't know like so much stuff and it also it was just really nice and this is just um uh, just the fiddly art stuff, but in the script, he addresses so many of the notes to me. He's like, all right, Keen, this is where we need the Scarlet Witch to just go crazy. Or this is going to be one of those things, Keen, where Dr. Doom is going to do something crazy. And it's just, it's quite nice to know that you, the script was written with you in mind so that you're not just a supplier on one end, you know, that uh, you, you were very much in in uh, involved in the thought process for the writer. It was really quite nice.
3: Do you ever look at scripts and go, oh, my God, how am I going to pull this off?
0: <laughs> I have, I have gone, uh, you, well, yes, sorry, yes, <laughs> yes is the short answer. I mean, I was trying to think of the diplomatic way to answer that, but yes is the answer. I've had a few where, because I did a lot of short stories uh, and I in in a succession there last year, there were, were one or two short stories where I was like, well, ah, there's, there's an awful lot to fit into 10 pages here, you know? And there's one or two things that it feels like they're being set up that I can't really set them up. There isn't space, there, like there isn't enough real estate on the page, or I can set it up, but there isn't really a payoff later on, which which th- that's frustrating because you want to get it right. You know, you want to crack everything and you want to give everything space to breathe. But sometimes in a 10 page story, there are definitely, uh, there are definitely scripts that give you loads of room. And then there are scripts that it's just, it's super packed. It's like trying to fit an entire issue into 10 pages, which absolutely doesn't work. Um, yeah, so yeah, there's been quite a few times where, oh, and also really small things. I was working on something recently and I never thought about this before, but uh, writers need to keep an understanding of the geography of a scene. In their heads that had never occurred to me before have you seen uh the last mission impossible film
1: uh the uh the one with one uh, henry cable uh
0: yeah. no sorry the one before that sorry it was the one before that the reason i bring it up is because have that whole f- there's a whole scene in the vienna opera house where there's like four different things happening and there's an assassination attempt about to happen and i don't know how but chris McQuarrie keeps the geography of the scene perfectly understandable you've got like people downstairs you've got people in the opera box you've got somebody on stage there's a fight scene the in the week and it's crazy and it was the first time i was ever conscious of how important it is to make sure that pe- people when they're looking at something understand where they are within a three-dimensional space like it's it's really really important and i was working on something recently and i realized that If you've got two or three or four characters talking in in a panel or on a page, if you have all of them talking in the first panel on the page, and then in the second or the third panel, the uh, order in which the characters begin to talk is somehow reversed. So say, for example, you have one character speaks, you're going to put them on the top left, right? Because that's the way we read. We read from Mm -hmm. left to right so if you get down into another panel and suddenly the third character is speaking first man the 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 whole geography of the page is thrown out because you you have to set up where all the characters are in the first panel to make sense of where they're going to be in the third panel and if suddenly the whole speaking order just goes all over the place it's really really hard so that there's been one or two times now where I've had pages where I'm like, I'm going to have to throw in some crazy angle or I'm going to have to come out really, really far to, to be able to get that character to speak first. Cause I had them on the far right over in like the corner somewhere. And now they speak first and then all the characters who are on the far left have to speak. Does that make sense? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Cause uh, as an artist drawing pages in a comic, you're sort of the director, the cinematographer yeah the director of okay. photography yeah you you have to worry about all this stuff yeah and the
3: light guy according to klaus
0: now oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 oh my god i haven't i've got ptsd uh yeah no <laughs> <laughs> like uh, you're 100 correct it, those are absolutely um, and look normally it's it's not an issue it's just there's inevitably going to be a point where uh it's not two characters speaking or even three characters speaking and you'll often see even when you've got two main characters speaking and there's 15 other characters in the panel they're not going to do anything and if you have like you can get away with it in some of the big team books because uh if there's like 20 like if it's the justice league you can just jump into something close of two characters talking to each other or one character says something but if you have three characters or four characters speaking in a small room and one of them speaks out of sequence, man, it's so hard to solve that problem because you really have to figure out where they're going to be. Uh, it often makes me think of, you know uh, you know what they always say, if you're going to do an exam, you got to read all the questions first. Like you cannot start to solve your page or your script until you've read the whole thing because You can have something absolutely perfect, and then on the following page, somebody does something and it just throws the whole thing out. So, yeah, you you, you really got to. It is exactly like being a director, and quite a lot like being a director for stage rather than film, I think. Like, you've got to worry about where the camera is, but you really need to understand the 3D space and where those characters are going to go and how they're going to cross over each other and how that dialogue is going to make sense when one of them speaks out a turn. Like, it's. It's quite fun. It like it's it used to give me the sweat when when I'd have to break down a a script, but now it's becoming one of my favorite parts because it's a real it's like a Rubik's Cube. Like you really have to solve quite a lot of stuff Um, yeah, all the lighting and, and the composition stuff that comes afterwards. But the storytelling for me, at least the storytelling comes comes first.
3: Well, you you reference Mission Impossible. Do you kind of watch movies now to see how they frame the story and kind of apply that to your own work?
0: Yeah, so I loved film before, but then after working in advertising, I I was an art director. So we would get a brief from a client, we'd have to crack it, and it was up to me to come up with something clever, depending on whatever the medium would be, whether it was for TV or radio or well less radio but new newspapers or print or whatever i was in charge of what everything had to look like so you know even professionally speaking you had to become interested in the way things were done for film or the way uh, photographers would shoot stuff and then obviously how things would be lit and if you had an in like if you already had an interest in that kind of stuff that would obviously feed into the the kind of art director you'd be but yeah you 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 end up getting so deep into that stuff and I was working with a copywriter who was a good friend of mine and we had written we had actually written comics when we were in college and uh, nothing came of those but uh, we ended up working together for about five years as a team and he got me really into screenwriting so then you start getting into story structure and When I was saying to you guys earlier, as an artist, I I stopped reading comics when I I think I must have been about 16 or 17 because I discovered drink and cigarettes and and skate (laughs) and stuff. but, uh, (laughs) But I got back into them when I came back from Spain. I would have been about maybe 27. And I started reading stuff for the story. So I got more into. Uh, books by people like Rick Remender and, and like guys that really understand serious like story structure. And, uh, but all of that came from a love of writing. So, and all of that was fed by the, very much by the advertising career. So now the, like the storytelling of this for me is, it really is a joy because when you're handed a script and you get to break that stuff down, and you if you already have a, a love of like how scripts are written anyway, oh man, like pulling that thing apart to then refit it. And then also, sorry, but you're drawing superheroes, and superheroes are awesome. Like it doesn't matter how old you are, <laughs> it's awesome. Oh yeah. Um I was talking to Roberto Oggi, he's the the Italian inker who's who's working with me on the Darkhold book, and we were just saying that what's really fun for me is when you get a script and you read through it and the script starts to tell you what the tone is, you know, like every book should look different. I know your style is going to be there and the way you tell the story is going to be relatively similar, but the tone is always different. And that's really cool to me because I've done stuff like, uh, I did a short story with Mariko Tamaki. She, I did a Beast Boy story oh, yeah. with her and that felt like, it should be fun and it should be simple and there should be lots of kind of silliness in it. And then I did a chronos story there for one of the new year's Eve anthology books. And man, that thing was dark. Like it was super dark. And the Catwoman story, that's kind of a mix of both. So you've got her, she can be as dynamic as you want it to be. It's kind of a bit of a heist story. It can be dark if you needed to, but then you get to Darkhold, and man, this thing is just, it's Dr. Doom going up against Cthulhu. You know, like it's it's intense. And so there's no room for any uh comedy in it necessarily, but man, it's just big scale and like crazy fights and lots of lots of well Klaus Jansen's gonna love this comic, I'll tell you <laughs> that. <laughs>
3: But, uh, but I mean, yeah. you you gotta expect an inker to want more black on the page, right?
0: You know. <laughs> no no, for sure. And you know what? He was white. Right. I just don't like being shouted
3: at. <laughs> <laughs> He's a sweetheart, man. He would never uh, do that.
0: No, you know what? Uh, yeah, no, and and he was <laughs> right. I'm, I'm just joking. But uh, <laughs> yeah. so no, for me, like a huge thing is getting the script and reading through it, and and just um, do you know what? I always think about it like. You know when you get lots of different pieces of, uh, you guys have blue tack right? You know the, the, yep. the yeah. So you know when you get lots of pieces of that and you put it all together and it's just like a big misshapen ball and there's like, load, you can see all of the different pieces just like stuck together. And then when you start to roll it between your hands and it starts to kind of warm up and then like after a while it turns into the shape that it's gonna be and all of those pieces have just like worked themselves out and it's just a smooth individual piece again. That's the way I always think about it when I read a script because it's all of these different pieces. Everything's kind of loose and there's bits sticking out and, and you're kind of going through it and you're making notes. And then over time, you start to figure it out and suddenly it starts to become like a cohesive thing. And then once you've got your thumbnails done and they're approved, you're just into doing it then. And it's just like, like for example, it's um, uh, Robin, I know you've said that sometimes you talk to artists on this show and they're drawing like I am at the moment while, yeah. uh, while they're talking. The reason you can do that is because you've made all of your critical choices long before you get to the point where it's just it's on the page now. So I'm lightboxing this. I've done all the hard work and everything after this is muscle memory. And you're just in like a really good space. It's a, like it's a really, really nice, healthy like headspace to be in because you just spend hours just sitting here and just listening to podcasts or listening to music or talking and just just cranking workout man and it's so much fun it's so much fun it's it's yeah.
2: definitely it's definitely a skill though like you said i know it sounds you're, you're describing it but it, that not everyone can do that you guys have had so much practice doing it that's for you guys it's easy i was just trying to chew gum and walk the other day and i fucking cracked my head open on the concrete outside <laughs> and i'm like i can't even I, I wouldn't even think about what you guys do it's insane
0: <laughs> um is hard man like don't give yourself a hard time but um was well, you know, it like I mean, hubba bubba or <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think and like you have to I suppose remember as well that if you're drawing, particularly if you're drawing for DC and Marvel, it's probably because you've put quite a few hours in already. so an awful lot of this stuff is like it, it's funny it, there is a very fine line here between just muscle memory and improvement. so some part of you is still awake while you're doing it because you're you're definitely getting better with every single thing that you've done like if you think about it of all the favorite artists that you guys have if you go back to their very early stuff none of them draw the way they draw now right Mm -hmm. and some of that is because uh, particularly uh, like way back when there was more of a house style and i get that right that's not really an overarching thing anymore but But an awful lot of it is also because you are drawing like all of your um, influences. You're drawing like all of your favorite artists. So you can see the DNA of all of your influences in your early work. And then when you start getting these deadlines and some of them are really, really tight, you can't keep grabbing your Jin Lee book and you can't keep grabbing your like whoever it is that you always go to because you don't have time. And suddenly, you start making your own choices because you have just got to get the page done. And over time, then those are the things that end up giving you style. There's an awful lot of people kill themselves trying to figure out what their style is going to be. And look, your style is going to be all of the things you've ever loved and all the drawings you've ever done before, just like thrown into a, a like a like a garbage compactor, and it's just going to get like pushed out for the deadline. And then after a while, you stop worrying about it, and your your uh, style is just the, it's what your deadline makes you do every single time, and you get to course correct, you know, every so often. But like at this point, yeah, you should be at a point where, um, you're taking calls and just and just being able. Sorry, no, I that sounded like I was <laughs> saying exactly how this is supposed to work. That's not what I meant. But you do get to a point where you are able to pencil once the critical choices are done on the page you're able to just make sure that your line weights and all that kind of stuff are they are just coming out of you naturally. And they, they should be, you know? Because um, you drive yourself crazy being uh, overconscious of all the critical choices you're making on the page all the time. You'd never get anything done. Or you'll do what I did when I first had my shot at Marvel. You spent five months working on, like, five, <laughs> three months working on five pages. It's just crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, every, I think everyone has their different level that they end up settling in at Uh, when we spoke with clay Mann a long time ago uh he described he's amazing he is and what was funny to hear from him he's
2: okay
1: (laughs) uh, was to hear him describing like how when he watches other artists work how it seems effortless that they're just putting their pen to paper and just drawing these beautiful things. But for him, oh. he described it as being very hard and he's drawing and erasing and fixing and erasing and doing it again. And yeah, yeah I, I wonder how many people have that same perception of other artists. Oh, the, the, this guy's so much better than me. Uh-huh. And you see people as well. Like, when people are giving advice, uh, when when artists are giving advice, You'll hear guys say things like, "You know you have to stop going for one hundred percent perfect on every page. you 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 yeah. can't spend days on one page. Yeah you know, it's not realistic. So you stop looking for perfection, shoot mm-hmm. for like ninety percent and move on to the next page,
0: yeah. I think what's interesting about that is like that's that's entirely correct. But what's really interesting about it is being able to understand the art that you produce as both an objective and a subjective experience, right? Because when you start to draw something, it's, oh man, it's all difficult. Like everything is dreadful. And a lot of what's built into uh, how difficult it is to draw is the doubt that you have while you're drawing the thing you're drawing. I think you'd even find Clay Mann who would tell you that he agonised over details on a page. That by the time he finished the issue and went back to that page, he wouldn't have been able to tell you what it was he was agonising over. Right? An awful lot of that is is just baked into just being the person who's who's drawing it. Like it's you always doubt stuff, and it is quite difficult. But then you also have to realise that you're experiencing every single agonising choice and every single line that you're putting on it. Uh, but the the reader isn't. You know, one of the cool things that I learned from working in uh, advertising for so many years was, uh, you know, it was my job to worry about getting the retouching on a photo right and and all that kind of stuff or getting the edit right with the director for whatever ad we were shooting. But there was always a point where the client didn't see it anymore. Like, you can, there's a point where you can overcraft something. Like, it's finished sometimes. And I think that's the 90% that people talk about. It's a good rule of thumb to just aim for it to make sure that it's that it's done but there's also a point to just know that like you're not drawing for you if you were you would never you would never finish anything but you're drawing for other people and as we were talking about like you know you're getting storytelling down you're getting dynamics down i saw somebody tweet recently uh, for those people who kind of zoom in on some kind of janky hand that you might find in a panel, like if somebody does like a googly eye on somebody or whatever, <laughs> that it's not fair because it, artists are doing like a thousand drawings in an issue. And it's interesting because that's your 90 percent. You're never going to get it right. But most people don't see it because that's not what people are looking for. You know, like it's it's a it's a story. So. Yeah, it, it's it is hard, but I think you have to understand that ultimately the thing is going to be seen by everyone else, and so you're drawing for them. You know, mm-hmm. you're making critical choices for you in the storytelling, but the final art is for other people. Also, the colorist is going to make you look really good. So,
1: oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that I I know you've done uh, I think you've done some some inking as well right um that that's one thing that i have looked at jim lee is a good example of this i've looked at jim lee pencil pages and just thought i don't know where how do you even know where to start with inking that there is so much going on that when it's just those light pencil lines yeah sometimes i don't know what i'm looking at
0: oh and yeah Where
1: do you even so, start with doing that
0: oh it's cool because um when you like the pencil thing is that it's the it's getting your gesture down and making sure that the dynamics are in there and that the like get the face right, get the hands right, and you can pretty much screw up everything else. Like you know that's that's what we look at. Everything else is going to be fine. But once you've sketched it out, the the pe- the the inking part is the craft part, right? And it's the part that I uh, I love doing it, but I hate doing it. Right, it, I I don't know any other way to to describe it because once the pencils are down, the inking is where you add all of the volume to the lines. Right, it's like the you know the, in Chasing Amy where he's like, oh, you're a tracer, and you're like, no, 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 <laughs> I, I have, like life and vitality to the artwork, and uh, that's that's the inking stuff. So you get in and you just try and find where you can just add the actual dynamism to the lines themselves like the the dynamics are in the pencils which is why you'll often you'll often hear uh and you hear joe mad of all people say it um that he hates to ink his pencils because he feels like the life goes out of it and i get that and i actually i spoke to olivier coipel about this at new york uh last uh last october and he was saying why why are you inking stuff like you're you're losing some of the life in the in the pencils and i said yeah but you know i'm finding an awful lot of slickness in the in the inks so it, it has to you have to put a different hat on you know um but i think oh and and the other thing that i would say is the incredible thing about inkers is they absolutely understand that the cross hatching and stuff like that is is about values and tones not to get like get too technical on it but when you when you grow up copying jim lee you just throw cross-hatching on everything, right? Like, that guy's amazing. He just, just like, he'll, it's just like thatching a cottage. Like, that guy just puts lines on everything. <laughs> and I, I don't know how, but it ends up just being this incredible piece. But then you give it to an inker, and an inker knows that what Jim Lee was doing was get, going from dark to light on, like, four different muscles in the leg. And, and it's just <laughs> those guys have a – and also, sorry, but we know that inkers know that the more black on a page, the better the page. Like, I can't <laughs> –
3: so uh, <laughs> absolutely <laughs>
0: yeah, <of course. laughs> when in doubt black it out yo oh, man you know what i've said that so many times i'm so happy you said that like there are words to live by i'm gonna get that tattooed on my face
1: well when you started talking when you used the metaphor of the blue tack i wanted to correct you shouldn't that blue tack be black <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> your metaphors aren't dynamic enough. There's enough black in your metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> right. You should have said that. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I don't know. When it comes to inkers, so sorry, your original question was so I like I also ink a lot of stuff. I would normally ink myself. This time, I've asked for Robbie to help me because I would never get the Darkhold issue finished before Catwoman. Issue two starts. That's how tight these these deadlines are. So in this case, I got onto the editor and I said, "Look, is it okay with you guys?" Because I actually I actually called the editor and said, "Look, Sean Murphy's just called me and asked me would I do this job." And they were like, "Yeah, of course. You've got to you've got to take these jobs when they come in." Uh, so I, it was up to me to try and find a way to solve it for them. But they were happy if the solution I found worked. So. Myself and Robbie will work on Darkhold, but I'm inking all of the Catwoman stuff because that's just it's it's more fun. Like it takes a lot longer and it's a lot harder because it's a separate job. But it's uh, but it's also still a lot of fun. Like,
1: and 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 you get to show Klaus that you know how much uh, black needs to be on the page.
0: No, could you imagine? Could you imagine the ultimate showdown where I'm like. What about this, Klaus? And he's like, who are you? <laughs> Actually, I, was, uh, I was thinking about this because I met um, Dan DiDio at New York. <laughs> I met him at New York in October. And uh, I said, um, oh, I was with Kyle Higgins. And Kyle said, oh, Dan, uh, this is uh, he he's, uh, he's working for you now. And he turned around and he went, hey, man, oh, I love your stuff. Uh, what do you do? <laughs> Get the coffee. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Great that you do have this glut of jobs coming at you, and it came from you having the the courage to make that leap, leave the job that you had to to take this full time. You know, do what you had to do, and and give this your full attention. Uh, yeah. how close did you come to taking the safe road
0: oh that's that's uh, well it's a good question because to be honest i was i was living the safe road like you know i was i had my career everything was fine career uh, career trajectory was going really well um and and comics was what i wanted to do so at any point i could have just stopped the comic stuff and just continued on and, and just gone on to be a creative director somewhere or started my own agency you know it just it was always an option but comics was always what I wanted to do and advertising like any other industry has changed a lot and particularly in the last 10 years you know it's becoming more like marketing than it the creative pursuit that it used to be so I was kind of falling out of love with the work that I was doing because all I was doing was really solving problems for clients as opposed to solving creative problems so with the comic stuff in the last few years what was getting difficult was just i was getting i was getting work and it would be like a 10 page story and i'd be given four weeks to do it and oh man you were i was working on the train on the way in i was working on the train on the way home i was working through my lunch breaks and then working on the the weekends and when I got my first Marvel gig, the Doctor Doom story, I had to take a load of my holiday days, you know, sick days and stuff. Thankfully, the traffic manager that I had in the agency that I was in, she knew. So every so often I'd get like a, a an email from Marvel or DC, which was crazy at the time. Like those are the emails that you dream about getting. And it would be, Keen, do you think that you could turn around this 10-page story in the next three and a half weeks? And you'd have a full-time job. And you'd just be Damn. like, yes, I can take it. I'll do it. And so it ju- it did get to the point where I was just, I was like, I canceled holidays. I'm never told any of the editors. It wasn't really an issue. It was my choice to make, but I'd have holidays that I would cancel. And so just if the, if the work came in, I took it. So when I ultimately ended up working in comics full time, it it was just such a joy, such a joy. because like, now I have the time to, to do the work. And it's not like the work I was doing previously because what's really fantastic about the editors that you're working with is they know how much time it takes to do this. So they approve your thumbnails and they're with you if you need them. But man, they just let you work because uh, the most frightening thing that you learn when you go full-time in comics is if you don't hit your deadline, the work, like if you just don't do it, it doesn't get done. Like you can't steal a page from a previous issue to get through the deadline, you know, it, it's like uh, if somebody orders a table and you're a carpenter and you deliver it with three legs, like it's just the, the table's not finished, you know. So <laughs> that was the scariest thing. It was like being back in college. Like you can't get around not doing the work. That was the scariest part. But then once you kind of get into it and you, you you're you okay with that end of things, oh, it's, it's, it's been the, the best thing. So yeah, it was, it was worth putting the time in. I, but it was also a joy to do it, even though it was kind of tough, and it it was filling a lot of time I couldn't really have given it. I gave it; it paid paid off, and it allowed me to to do it all the time. So yeah, it was it was a it was a, a an easy choice at the end.
3: How good did it feel to be able to walk out of that office and meet drop the deuces and be like,
0: "Peace out, bitches!" <laughs> Man, just like I left a couple of steamers on the floor. <laughs> 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 Here's what I Kate. <laughs> no uh, I Yeah. Uh, no, it was now buy crazy. my books, bitches. Yep, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and I've left a The ventilator. Uh, no, the uh, uh, it was cool. I actually I rang one of my creative directors, and he'd had a really shit day. He'd actually gone home early, and I said, uh, "Look, I, I've just been offered this thing." And uh, I've I've got to take it. I'm going to leave. And I've been in this agency for about four or five years. Like I've been there for a long time. And the creative director, uh, he answered the call and he said, you know what? I never knew that the worst news I could get today would be the best thing I was going to hear. And I was like, oh, man, like there's no better way for your boss to tell you that you've made the right choice, you know? So. So yeah, I left a like a department of creatives that I'd worked with for about five years, and it was just every single one of them knew that it was the, the right choice. So there was none of the like I would have loved to have been able to go, you know, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool. <laughs> <Fuck> you <out." laughs> it didn't. Uh, it did. It wasn't necessary in the end. Maybe next time. <laughs> <laughs> just me shouting at my cast. <laughs> like, fuck you, I'm out. If DC came to you and said, what book would you want to do an ongoing with, you know, 12 issues or more, or and any character you haven't done before, and then the flip side, what character would you want to do for like a short story like um, that you haven't done before for eight issues? Uh... Like, what would be... The- what would be the dream for DC to come to you and say, look, pick any character you want, your choice? Do you know what I would love to do? I would love to do something about Clayface. I don't I don't know why. I just think he's so tragic. Like and and I know there's people have kind of glanced off him a couple of times, but I just think there's something, particularly these days, with uh you know just like celebrity and stuff like that if you've got a guy that he could be anything but man he's just he's a mess i just everything about him is just brilliant if if d if dc gave me the the chance to pitch something i've actually been thinking about this a lot recently um i would love to do something with with clayface specifically even if batman wasn't even in it um i if, if I could change the question slightly, if I got the chance to do anything I wanted to do, I would love to do a Batman black and white. I know they don't do them anymore. Yes. But I would love to do that so much. Like Batman black and white is where I discovered Andrew Robinson and guys like that. And even like the Adam Hughes Batman, like those, just those in and out. I'd love, I'd love to do it. I'd love to write and draw. Uh, oh, and... Um, was it Ollie Moss and Becky Cloonan did one? And it was all about these four girls that meet up for brunch and they talk about what it was like to, to be with Bruce Wayne for a night. Mm And those in and out stories were so great. They were so, so great. I would love to do a Batman black and white, but, uh, but I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think I, I find Clayface or Man Bat. And I know uh, Man Bat's just had his own little kind of mini there. Uh, it's a, either about to kick off or it's just started, I find those guys just so cool I just anything that feels kind of Victorian and, and just kind of foggy streets and lots of shadows and stuff like that 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 kind of stuff is so cool
2: they're like monster movie cool
0: yeah but you know what's funny about the, the thing is like I think if, if you said to me oh Keen, do you want to draw a monster movie thing I'd be like oh no I don't want to go anywhere near it and then if somebody said, Yeah, but you want to draw a man bat, I'd be like, Oh, hell yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, I don't know why those things occupy different spaces in my mind. Maybe it's just because of how how cool that the the character is. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I but the broadest answer to both of those questions is it would be a villain, absolutely, right. and it wouldn't have to be a Batman villain, but I just find those guys tend to be super tortured. Like, I don't know yeah. how many issues. The like, and I mean, like psychological issues the writers over the years have been dealing with, but they've created some of the the the, the most the richest, saddest bad guys. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, when you think about—I've uh, been lucky enough uh, to work with Paul Dini already. But when you think oh, about, yeah, man, the stuff that he did, like Mister Freeze, wouldn't really do much for me as a character because I'm not a huge fan of his design or anything, but. Like, nobody can argue with the episode of the animated series about Mr. Freeze, like... advice? Oh, yeah. Oh, like, yeah, just... and oh, sorry, <laughs> Clayface. Yep, Basil yep, Carlo. So, but, oh, yeah, like, just... Beats of Clay. Know, it, yeah, man, and that whole scene in the room full of all the... the The images the and stuff, like... You know, it really goes to show just how uh any kind of like the strength of the writing can take anything and just elevate the the subject matter like so yeah no if it was up to me the 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 short answer would be just it would be a villain like if you guys have any stories in the back of your head that you've always thought about for bad guys like i'll pitch them with you
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> What made some of those so great, especially like the way Dini did it for the animated series, was it made the villains so human. It gave them like such a human backstory that tied into either with Clayface, you know, just this like obsession with wanting to be this perfect actor. And then with Man Bat, you know, tied to his, his drive to be a scientist. And then later on with the tie and the connection to his wife, you know, it just made it really human. And like I was just thinking the other day, Um, I was re-watching Feet Feet of Clay and then um, uh, the Scarecrow episode and also the Two-Face episode thinking this was for a kids' show. It's so dark. Yeah. And
0: it's like so, yeah, (laughs) never fly today. No, and, and and it's kind of, do you know what's really fascinating about the episodes that you've mentioned? Is that every single one of those characters, and you forget this, like if the Joker turns up, It's because he's trying to fight Batman, right? He's trying to do something terrible that Batman's going to have to come and stop, right? Right. The characters that you've just mentioned and the storylines you've just mentioned, the reasons why these are so cool is because those guys are doing something dreadful for themselves. Batman stops them, but it's got nothing to do with him. Like, what they've done has ranged over into the world where Batman is like, oh, you know, I can't really let this go. But um, Clayface, man, that's that's just a guy that just got fucked over. And yeah. he's really like <laughs> just hurting really bad. Yeah. And think about Mr. Freeze, like the purest possible motivation. None of that has anything to do with Batman. But what they end up doing to to like the the deals that they, they make with the devil to to achieve the goals that they want. As altruistic as those goals might be to them, that's what's so cool. It's like there's shades of gray for all of those stories. With the Joker, there isn't as much. Like he's he's there to, it's it's become like cliche now, he's, he's there to cause mayhem, right? I, I get it. Or an awful lot of the time he's doing something, oh, there's laughing gas or he's poisoning the, the water, but he's doing it just to do something bad. Like it's never something that he wants. What would be really cool would be, uh, and forgive me if it has happened and I haven't read it, but it would be really cool to 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 calm the Joker down briefly, or in some some aspect. And I, I know Sean did a version of this; it's not quite the same, but like, but to to try and figure out what does he want that has it's it's just for him, and then like bring the scale of this stuff back down. I think you you find this quite a lot, but like these characters have become so bombastic and so much like caricatures of themselves, that they're not behaving like people anymore. And and I think sometimes you can lose readers with that stuff. It's so much... I, You know what? Sorry. As I go through this, I realise that that's one of the reasons why Playface and Man-Bad are probably so appealing to me. It's because those guys are just wrapped up in their own dreadful moments. And and every so often, they do something that Batman has to come in and just, like, kick the shit out of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah you're right the, the list of episodes you just made or you just gave her they're fantastic man they're really really good
1: yeah and uh those origin stories that paul was writing uh just they they never need to be touched again like okay that that character's origin story is done no one ever no one ever fuck with that again paul paul <laughs> yeah. paul got it now, like, guys- he, revo- he revolutionized uh mr freeze
0: oh yeah like have you guys have you seen the 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 bible the yeah. Animated the Bible? yeah yeah for mm-hmm. any of your listeners who haven't heard about it it's worth looking for because um i heard about it first oh maybe five or six years ago and i looked it up and uh i i have one here beside me it's one of the first things again the benefit of working in an agency was being able to run off a, like 200 page documents and then use the whole puncher um, so uh, don't, tell I, don't tell them I did that. But uh, so I have those here in the studio beside me. Like, um, it's fantastic. And like, I don't know an awful lot about the animation behind series, like TV series, but the the work that those guys did on the guide for everybody, the characters, their motivations, and their origin stories, as you said, it's phenomenal. It's really, really amazing.
1: Uh, now we're about to have. Uh, Paul coming back to the universe of the animated series and the comics
0: oh oh, really?
1: yeah he's doing uh, doing some more comics with uh, I believe it's Ty Templeton drawing them
0: oh wow Oh, that's so cool that's such a great team as well yeah. um, and I should point out that uh, the cat woman that I'm drawing in these issues is wearing the animated series costume nice. I don't know if you guys Perfect. knew that yeah. Uh, I,
1: I've seen um, Sean's uh, covers for the two issues yes but uh, I don't think we've seen any of uh, your interiors yet
0: oh uh, well they haven't but if you guys want to shoot me your email addresses, so I can ping you a couple of pages uh, Ooh, yes I
1: think, I think you've oh. uh, got mine but uh, I'll send another email over
0: yeah uh, I can show you one or two uh, and you can see what she looks like or at least the first moment that she turns up Nice. Uh, oh, again, no spoilers. New phone background. <laughs> yeah. It has been an honor. Thank you so much for yeah. having me on the show. Oh, thank, you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for thank you taking so the time to
1: do it, especially when you have so much uh, pressure on you right now with all these projects
0: going. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: It's awesome that things have uh, been hitting so well for you.
0: Oh, thank you. And listen, uh, it, it's been a lot of fun. This was a great break and hopefully there'll be more stuff coming out soon. And uh, yeah, if you want to talk again, just give me a shout. If, if
3: you good. want, uh, Please plug your social media and where our audience can go and and find more of your work.
0: You can find me at, and uh, I would give 10 out of 10 to everybody for saying my name properly. I don't know how you managed to do that. Uh, My, all my social media handles are the same. I'm at Kian Tormey, C I A N T O R M E Y. So you'll find me on Instagram and Twitter. Please follow me. Please say hello. Uh, I love talking to everybody uh, and we'll always respond. Uh, if I can. So, uh, yeah, that's you'll find me there. And just don't be a stranger. All right. Awesome. awesome. Well, Guys, thank,
1: thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, Kian. You have a great night. Look All forward right. to seeing the books come out.
0: All right. Thank you, guys. See you later.
3: Hey, Gotham Dwellers. Make sure to stop everything right now and subscribe to Batforce Radio. We can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Don't miss out. Guaranteed to satisfy all of your Batman and DC needs.